Welcome to the YA Cafe, where we share conversations about books for teachers, readers, and caffeine addicts everywhere. On today's episode, we'll be talking about Blanqui Roja by Anna Marie McLemore. Grab a mug of your favorite beverage, friends, and let's talk books. Find even more book reviews, teaching ideas, and secondary ELA resources at teachnouvelle.com. Welcome, y'all. As always, our first segment will be spoiler-free, and so you can stick around even if you haven't checked out the new novel yet. And we are back for our second season on an official podcast. Woohoo! We did an Instagram Live last week, and we're going to see if we can try to load that as a sound file. But in the meantime, you're back with us here on your favorite podcasting app, and we missed you. I'm Amanda Thrasher. And I'm Danielle Hall, an 8th and ninth grade English teacher, and I blog at teachnouvelle.com. We are joined today by our friend Jamie. Jamie is a fellow teacher and a book lover extraordinaire, and she joined us for episode four, our book versus movie episode of Love, Simon, and Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda. Hi, Jamie. Welcome back. Hi. Thanks for the invite. Nice to see you're not in the closet anymore, by the way. <laughs> we have upgraded here. <laughs> we have a whole room. Blanca y Roja is a twist on the classic fairy tale Snow White and Rose Red and shares the tale of a family under a curse. Unto each generation will be born two sisters, and at their coming of age, one of them will be turned into a swan. Blanca is the older, gentler, sweeter sister, and Roja is a bit rougher around the edges. The girls must work through a curse that tries to pit them against one another, reaching through the thorns to hold on to their love for each other. So, we have discussed Anna Marie McLemore's work on the show before. Her short story, Glamour, appeared in the Radical Element anthology discussed in episode 6, and we were obsessed with that story. And her story, Love Spell, appeared in the Toil and Trouble anthology discussed in episode 28. So, Jamie, you told me before the podcast that this book was not something you would have picked up on your own, but that you're super excited I asked you to read it. Yes. What did you think of it? Honestly, at first I was kind of being a hater because I thought it was like an everything but the kitchen sink kind of book. Mm. And then it started to dawn on me that it's not moralistic in its everything but the kitchen sink kind of way that everything actually seamlessly blends into the plot without feeling like she's trying to be overly inclusive, which I appreciated. Yeah, I agree. I thought like at the beginning I was trying to get my bearing. I knew that it was magical realism going into it based on her two short stories, one of which was in an anthology that was literally about magic. So like I was ready, but it's still probably not a book that I would have picked up without having first read those short stories and been convinced that this was going to be an awesome read. How about you, Amanda? What did you think? So I agree with a lot of what both of you said. I think that beyond magical realism, this is a book it's very hard to get your feet underneath you not because of magical realism elements but just because of her writing style it's very beautiful and like there's a lot of poetry in her prose but that also tends to mean that a lot of times you're not entirely sure what's going on like what's a metaphor what's just in a character's head what's What's actually happening yeah but i really enjoyed kind of just riding along can I jump in on what both of you said? One, I agree with you, Amanda, on the beauty of the writing. And I think that's why I kept reading it, even if in the beginning I was a bit confused about what was going on and who these characters were and how they were going to connect to each other. But then going to what Danielle said, I have an issue with this being called magical realism 
partially as someone who's Latina, partially as someone who studied literature as an undergrad, I think the term is misused here. And I know that in the author's note, she explains the sort of intersectionality between fairy tales and magical realism. But for me, magical realism is a story that seems like real, like normal fiction. And then suddenly there's this twist that is a magical element, like one magical element, maybe two. But this story is largely magical. It's a fairy tale. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. So why are we calling it magical realism when it has more in common with the fairy tale than with magical realism stories in the traditional Latin American sense? I agree. And I mean, I don't think that there's any shame in calling something a fairy tale. I feel that this is a modern day fairy tale. Uh, But big question mark on that, and we'll get back to the sense of time and place in this story. But it's not necessarily magical realism just because there's magic. Yeah, I agree. I don't think this should be called magical realism, especially so I just finished uh, Dreaming in Cuban by Christina Garcia. And so like reading Dreaming in Cuban and then reading this and having it build as magical realism, it's just like, ah, no, not exactly. Not bad, but different. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about is like, this is not a traditional retelling because in this story, the girls are aware of the fairy tale Snow White and Rose Red. And I'm just going to do an explanatory comma for the listeners who may not know that there's like a second fairy tale with Snow White in it. But this is, you know, a girl who has the same name. But otherwise, not much in common with the Disney version of Snow White. This is a completely separate story. And we have the two sisters. They're set up to be totally different types of people. And then stuff happens. And I can't actually tell you what happens in the fairy tale because this is a retelling. So that would be spoilers, right? But the girls in this story are aware of that story. And so this story, in a way, becomes more about like stepping outside of the roles that everyone around them expects them to play. Like everyone looks at Blanca and thinks, oh, she's the good sister because she's blonde and Roja has blood red hair. So she's clearly evil and needs to be taken by the swans. I wanted to ask you, were you both familiar with the uh, Snow White and Rose Red fairy tale before reading this book? No, I mean, I was familiar with Swan Lake, the yep. ballet, but not really the fairy tale itself. I was, but not like super familiar. I'd really only read one version. I was not familiar at all with it. I, and I wondered if it was cultural because I'm not from the States. I wondered if it, it was a story that was told here as part of the grim oeuvre. Uh, we get our fairy <laughs> tales from Disney movies. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But it was curious because I actually looked it up and and read what it was about. And it's not quite the story that they know, that the characters in this story know. Yes, I agree with that. They know like a much more violent version. Yes. So there's that kind of meta aspect. And then I have something I'll say in the spoilers section about this. We look forward to your thoughts. It's like a teaser trailer (laughs) for the spoiler section. (laughs) So... One of the things that I kind of hinted at was like, before we started recording, we were talking about the feeling of time and place in this novel. It's a retelling. I hesitate to call it a modern retelling because it took us a long time to figure out that this book could be more modern than our first thoughts about it. Right. Yeah, so I started reading this book and it's a fairy tale retelling. And when you think fairy tales, you think 
it's set in the past, right? You think of this kind of forest and the people dressed in, in a certain garb that is evocative of, I don't know, 17th or 18th century. Um, and so I was reading it, picturing that it's set in the past, sort of European background, even though they're Latino uh, characters. And then we get to this part where they lent a character some jeans. And I literally did a double take, like, oh, wait, what? This is set in the present? <laughs> but for the longest time, I had no clue. Because the, even the weapons that they mention and the herb aspect of it, they, they use a lot of natural medicine. And, and they do mention school. But again, you know, it doesn't mention anything specific about the school that made me think it was set in the present. I really liked kind of the vagueness of time and space um, because I thought that it lent itself to a fairy tale vibe. That being said, I did go into it assuming it was it took place in the American Southwest because that's where her short stories took place. So that's kind of the baggage I brought into it. I just assumed it was the same. But there are very few details about like what the town is called and who all lives there. But... The home is very richly developed. Like all of the homes in the story are much more detailed and built up in terms of the world. So it's definitely like a domestic story in that sense. And I feel that the descriptions of the home are an extension of the families that each character is born into, which again, tie everything together as we learn about each character. So speaking of each character, one of the things that's very, I think, important to the ideas of this book, as well as general representation for this book, is that one of the perspective characters is a genderqueer person, not necessarily like fitting into a gender binary either way. And I'm not sure I've read that before. So that was cool. Yeah, I thought that that was really cool, too. And I thought that the fact that it was one of four perspectives meant that we had another perspective character who asked questions of the genderqueer character about pronouns and word choice and things like that and they had kind of a very open conversation about that and the genderqueer character was able to express their preferences and it was like a great little like how to have a good conversation about pronouns example yeah, and I really like that conversation in particular because Blanca was like, is it rude for me to be asking these questions? And Paige said, no, most people don't ask. Like, so I thought that was a really, really good detail. Right. And that conversation happened after the author had set up that Paige's family wasn't asking the question. And Paige felt uncomfortable with how the family was dealing with Paige discovering who he was. The other thing I wanted to mention when we're talking about this is, were you guys aware that the author is married to a transgender man? Yes. Yeah, I was too because of Glamour, the short story yeah. and the radical element. Were you? I was not until I, I read about it. And so the author does mention that she drew upon that experience to write this character, which I think is why it's so enlightened and, yeah. and so multifaceted. And why the conversation seems so seamless about gender, because it's probably something that they're both aware with and have to deal with on an almost daily basis, I would say. And I'm sure had a lot of conversations, both good and bad, about it. Yeah, another thing that is important to know about the author um, in terms of writing the story is she is a Latinx writer, 
and she's coming at this with cultural baggage. Yeah, which is something that surprised me because as a reader, as a Latina reader, I come at it with cultural baggage as well. The contentious relationship that sometimes the U.S. has had with Puerto Rico clouds my reading sometimes and how I view things and how I discuss certain things. So I I guess it's expected that, you know, Snow White and Rose Red, we would keep the aspect of the original fairy tales. But for me, I wish the whole idea of white is good and things that are not white are bad would be something she broke through in this book. So reading that, I took a lot of that to be this force of colonialism that Blanca and Roja had to deal with. So like the senora is telling Blanca she needed a boy with blue eyes. I thought that a lot of that was just how society saw them and not necessarily how they saw themselves, particularly Roja, because she talks a lot about how like brown is really beautiful to her. And then there's also this thing about, and they mentioned it in the book, about Blanca passing as white. Yeah, and I'm glad that that was in there because it showed that they were both aware of it and the privilege that they gave her sometime. And I, I feel like she said at one point that she was unhappy to not be able to be as much a part of her family as her sister was. But like at the same time, she's the one that got the culinary traditions and the things like that so it's interesting when you said passing i didn't connect the dots but like passing is very much a central theme to the short story glamour yeah in glamour which we strongly recommend that everybody reads like the magical element is that a girl goes to hollywood and actually chooses to have a glamour to make herself look white so that she can get roles in Hollywood and then when she goes home to her family she has to deal with like the consequences of like oh well you know you're only getting these roles because you're white you're denying your cultural heritage you're denying who you are and she has to kind of come to terms with that so it sounds like we are unresolved on this issue of lightness and darkness and white and red in the story so we will come back to that in the spoiler section another teaser yeah And with that, friends, we'll take our first break. When we come back, we'll share about things we like a latte. Then we'll return to our discussion of Blanca y Roja and dig a little deeper. Do you have a product you'd like to get in front of teachers, librarians, and other book lovers? If so, email us at yacafepodcast at gmail.com. Welcome back, y'all. It's time for Things We Like a Latte. Danielle, what's your brew of choice this week? Well, Amanda. Well, Danielle. I just wanted to shout out another YA novel that came out this fall, which is called Ignite the Stars by Maura Milan. It is a fantasy novel that, I don't know, it gave me like Battlestar Galactica vibes kind of. And it's about this flight academy, which made me think of your flight school and had a lot of cool like training montages, some stuff about rebels and like following established power versus like breaking out on our own and you know trying to see like 
the revolutionary's point of view. And I just thought it was a really cool, fun book, Ignite the Stars, Maura Milan. How about you, Jamie? What's your brew of choice this week? Actually, I'm going to throw you for a loop because I had said I was going to talk about something. But you mentioning that book reminded me that I read an awesome book this week that I just want to shout out and I want everybody to read as well. Because Hank Green, brother of the famous John, his novel. (laughs) He probably loves being introduced like that. (laughs) Well, they're both equally famous, but, you know, book wise, John has. A lot of books under his belt. I think I've heard of him. This is Hank's first. <laughs> anyway, Hank wrote this book called An Absolutely Remarkable Thing. And it's about this jaded New York young woman who is walking out at 3 a.m. And she finds this massive metal sculpture. And she just is like, oh, it's an art installation and walks by. And then she checks herself. And it's like, oh, my God, I am a jaded New Yorker because this is an amazingly massive sculpture in front of me. And I was just going to walk by it. And she has a friend who has a YouTube channel. So she calls the friend over and they record an episode and they upload it. And she's the first person to talk about it. But it turns out that at that exact same time, there are I think it was like 63 other sculptures that landed mysteriously in different parts of the world. Were they from aliens? Well, she calls them Carls. I don't want to tell you what it is, but it's all about trying to figure out what the Carls are. Are they alien? Are they man-made? Are they good? Are they evil? What do we do with the Carls? And there's a lot of weird elements, but it's super fun. And I borrowed it from the library, but I ended up buying a copy for my classroom library. And already one of my students has checked it out. So I'm excited about that one. And if you like sci-fi things i think you'll like this book that sounds awesome and i just wanted to uh shout out hank green's crash course he does sciencey stuff so strongly recommend yes. that there's a lot of science elements in this book too which makes elements it particularly interesting nerd yeah, pun intended <laughs> <laughs> how about you amanda what's your brew of choice this week So I am cheating a little bit because I actually did this last week for our Instagram live, but since we're not sure if we're going to get that up on the podcast, I want to make sure everyone in the world listens to this song. Uh, It's called Wicked Girls Saving Ourselves by Shannon McGuire, and it's sort of like a multi-fandom, multi-fandom fan video or song, Filk, Filk, that's, that's the word. And it's like 10 years old, but I just found it like a couple weeks ago and it's incredible and everyone should listen to it and know all the words and sing it when they're feeling stressed out by how terrible the world is. So yeah, Wicked Girls Saving Ourselves by Shannon McGuire. This is the last time I talk about it. Probably. Probably not. So you say. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not married to you and I say probably not. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll return to our discussion on Blanca y Roja. The rest of the show may contain spoilers, so if you're leaving us here, keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter at YA Cafe Podcast. We'll be back. Welcome back, y'all, to the YA Cafe. We're continuing our discussion on Blanca y Roja by Anna Marie Macklemore. If you haven't read this yet, we want to warn you again that this segment will contain spoilers. Spoilers! So, Jamie, you had more you wanted to talk about, like the colorism idea and the 
white as the pure and goodness and brown slash red as everything terrible. So what were your spoiler thoughts on that? Okay, so in the end, when we figure out who's going to be transformed into a swan, major spoiler, uh, it's Roja at first. Haha, second spoiler. Um, (laughs) Roja turns into a black swan which continues that evil, manipulative, controlling motif that Daniela was speaking about before we started recording. But I found it interesting that that she turns into a black swan because I think none of us pictured the possibility of a black swan. I don't know if you guys did. I definitely did. Okay. It's right there in the ballet. I mean. (laughs) One of the things that Paige says is that the biggest lie of all is the story you think you already know. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very prevalent message here. So again, we fill in our own blanks with our expectations based on what we know of previous fairy tales, but the author is trying to break those walls down. So while it's true that she does get turned into the black swan, like the other swans attack her and talk about how they're bitter because she's so much more beautiful, like she's so much more rare. Did that not make it any better for you? Also, before you answer, I just want to like, push back against this idea of gets turned into a swan because I feel like the author is somewhere in the universe listening to this podcast and this part I believe is about agency. Roja has decided to turn herself into a swan and we haven't introduced this yet because this is also a spoiler but both yearling and page the two like lost boys of this novel have done shape-shifting and they help roja turn herself into a swan so she's the one that finally says look i'm not gonna wait for the swans to decide which one of us they're gonna take like i'm i'm gonna be it i'm gonna transform so while that's true she didn't choose to be a black swan that is true well maybe like, I mean, I don't think that she chose to be a black swan, but, like, she's the one that transformed herself. Right. I also think that the black swan might be influenced by the emotions she had to harness in order to go through the transformation. Mm. Because she does have to, when, when Yearling is explaining the process, it, it's born out of rage and it's born out of impotence and it's born out of a very strong, dark emotion. Right. Before he was able to transform into a bear, he was escaping a very abusive situation. Indeed, to say the least. But then again, I understand about the beauty of the black swan, which you were talking about earlier. But this image of all these white swans taking on the black swan is also something that was a little bit triggering for me with all the violence going on recently. That was a tough (laughs) moment for me too. But it is also supposed to be like a horrifying moment because, you know, even though she's supposedly turned into one of these creatures, they're still attacking her. So we mentioned some that Yearling and Paige guided them into shape-shifting. Do we want to talk some more about their stories, particularly Yearling slash Barclays? Sure. So um, if you're a listener who has read this book but not the original fairy tale... Um, In the original fairy tale, the sisters open their home to this bear, and he's covered in ice and snow, and they get the ice and snow off of him, and then he transforms into a prince, and then the Snow White sister gets to marry him. And that's the thing. And Yearling is Barclay's chosen name, which I think is very important, like, 
in our conversations of queerness in this novel, like the fact that he has a chosen name, even though, you know, he doesn't say that he's queer, like, I think it's a callback to that in general. What I think is the the queerness aspect in all of their stories is the fact that they all choose their family. So Barkley chooses Paige as a brother yeah, uh, and, and vice versa. And I think ultimately the quartet becomes a family unto itself. And there's another Paige quote that I really liked, which was, there was no making the world take me as I was. All I could do was make the people who did my family. And I think any of us who have experienced this, we all have our blood family, but then we also have the family that are heart created, which is, I think, a big theme also in this book. Whether or not your family accepts you for who you are, ultimately, you do have this other subset of people who are the family you choose. Yep, chosen family. Harkening back to what we said about fairy tales yearling at some point says we were more than what they made us yep yes with these whole expectations we have because we think we know these fairy tales and these tales that the author uses to create this but they're really just woven into their own evolution i guess of of those previous fairy tales there are three fairy tales that are mentioned in the book one we've already spoken about it's snow white and rose red the other one, which we didn't mention, is the Nixie of Mill Pond. But the most familiar one is the story of the ugly duckling. And that's the one Paige identifies with the most. And there is a lesson Paige gleans from it somewhere in the middle of the book. Paige says, the story of the ugly duckling was never about the signet discovering he is lovely. It is not a story about realizing you have become beautiful. It is about the sudden understanding that you are something other than what you thought you were, and that what you are is more beautiful than what you once thought you had to be, which I thought was very powerful. And I think it applies to all of the characters. Yeah, and them finding themselves and, you know, not having to conform to whatever roles they, they think have been cast upon them. Building upon that, one of the other issues I found interesting was that all of the characters had a duality in them, except for Paige, who was non-binary. So she should be, or he, depending on what part of the book you're reading, should be above that. And there is one part where Roja says, but I was neither the selfless mermaid nor the ruthless Nixie. I was a girl who would never exist in a fairy tale, not just because of the brown of my body, but because of my heart. Neither pure enough to be good nor cruel enough to be evil, I was a girl lost in the deep, narrow space between the two forms girls were allowed to take. And I thought that idea of what girls are in fairy tales applies to Blanca, who was fighting with being the good girl, to Roja, who was also trying to find her way in the world as a person who was not white, and to Paige, who was not a traditional girl in the sense of the way, but she embraced the part of her that were female. Right. The author talks about, first of all, the roles that Latina girls are meant to fill. But I think that there's also like a larger Western understanding of the Marys versus the Mary Magdalene's and how you're really only allowed to be one of those things. That is to say, like a good girl who behaves a certain way or like there's the bad girl. And that's it. Those are like the two girls we have in any story this is definitely like a dismantling of that space in stories indeed 
Yeah, I think there's another quote in the end of the book that really highlights that as well. Blanca is talking, and one of the things she says is that the lie of who we were had killed who we might have been. It buried us, it stripped us down into girls uncomplicated enough to be understood. I feel like that's a lot of what it is. Like in fairy tales, you're supposed to be good or evil, and you can't have like the complexities that all of the characters displayed. So yay for complex characters. Let's do an English teacher thing and talk about motifs. Gross. <laughs> there was a motif in here about vision and seeing. Thank you. And that brings me to what I, I wanted to talk about next. Earlier, I was mentioning that I was hating on the book, as Amanda pointed out, because I'm a hater, <laughs> but really because it was everything but the kitchen sink. And one of the things was ableism, because Yearling does have a vision problem. The grandma talks about parallax, which is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. And that's another motif in the book not just because of Yearling's eyesight problem, but also at the point when Blanca is using the gun and she forgets the instructions she was given earlier about how to aim. Yes. So she learns to aim low to compensate for the kick of the shotgun and the fact that that will pull the aim a little higher. And just like in terms of seeing and vision, you know, obvious connection to how we view people and what we expect of them. And are we truly seeing them? That's my teacher voice. Don't you want to be a student in my class? I do not. <laughs> that is not, in fact, her teacher voice to be clear to everyone. Her teacher voice is charming. It's basically her normal voice with a lot of caffeine. <laughs> so overall, with this book, there was a lot of really beautiful imagery and some wonderful characters that we really loved. Even if we felt kind of adrift at some parts of the plot, it was really well written and we really enjoyed reading it. That's our show for today, friends. Thank you so much for joining us, Jamie. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Anytime you want to invite me back, I'm there. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at YA Cafe Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Happy reading. <laughs>